Gavin stepped into the council room. The colors were scattered around the table. For formal events, they would sit in order around the table. Subred, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, superviolet, black, prism, white. For meetings like this one, however, the pull of sitting by friends or the lure of grabbing one of the more comfortable chairs outweighed the natural tendency to sit in the same spot every time. Gavin found the last spot between the superviolet, a tall, skin-and-bones, coal-black, Parian woman named Saba, and the soft, lighter-skinned Rathgari man with the beaded beard, Kleidos Blue. Gavin had told Kip that each color represented a country, and that was mostly true. Each satrap or satrapa appointed one color. It was the most important decision most rulers ever made. But the system had begun to break down even before the False Prism's war, when Andros Guile had bribed and blackmailed his way into the Red Seat, though the Blood Forest already had one color. He'd been so audacious, he'd stolen that seat from Ruthgar, claiming that the Guile's sliver of swampland in Ruthgari made him eligible for the Ruthgari seat. Of course, after the war, similar logic had been used to deprive Tyria of a seat. There were so many interlocking and overlapping layers of loyalty, it was dizzying. Both the red and the green were Ruthgari, and thus likely to unite on any issue concerning Ruthgar. But the green was also cousins with Gia Tolver, an Abornian woman who was the yellow. The Abornian strangled both Perean and Ruthgari trade through the Narrows, so anything to do with trade would see them at each other's throats, but on anything else they might try to form a block. The sub-red was a blood forester, who were allies now with their stronger neighbors, the Ruthgari, but her parents had been killed in the war by the Greens' brothers. And on it went. Every noble family in the Seven Satrapies did everything it could to get at least one son or daughter into the Chromaria, if for nothing else than to try to watch their backs. In turn, everyone in the Spectrum did all they could to protect themselves. Family bonds, clan bonds, national bonds, color bonds, and ideological bonds cut every which way. The colors were political creatures as much as they were magical. To be named a color took a certain amount of chromaturgical aptitude, the white saw to that. But after that bar was reached, not a few of these seats had found inhabitants at the same time that donkey trains loaded with gold had made their way into royal houses. Gavin knew it had been thus when his own father had joined. The white was the first to speak. I call this meeting to order. Let the record show that all colors except for red are in attendance. They hated that. Hated that they couldn't get rid of Andros Kyle. They hated that in defiance of all convention, he hadn't attended a meeting in five years, but still insisted that his votes be counted. They hated what his having his vote delivered by messengers said about how little he valued their opinions. No eloquence would ever move Andros Kyle. He would see and weigh every issue alone and decide, regardless of the mummery of these Spectrum meetings. But they feared him, too. Lord Prism, you have called this meeting, so I turn over the proceeding to you. The White thought she was thwarting him, that he'd grown too independent, that he might become dangerous if she didn't yank the leash. Careful, Aurea. When choked, dogs go docile, but wolves go wild. Gavin's relationship with the Spectrum had always been thorny. Of course, when he'd been recuperating after Sundered Rock, they'd stripped him of his title of Promakos, taking control of the armies away from him, as custom dictated. But they hadn't known whether he would allow it. Still learning his new guise, he had, but he didn't care much for any of the colors personally, nor did they care for him. He'd lived too long, become too powerful. He didn't need them. 
and that scared them. They hated his father, they hated the Giles, and they stymied Gavin whenever they could. We need to release the city of Garrison immediately. Pull out all of our men and give it back to King Haradul. Preferably with an apology that we didn't do it sooner. King? That's what he's calling himself. Sada Superviolet looked concerned. Surely you're not serious, Lord Prism. The governorship transfers to Perea in a few weeks. It's our right. People have made plans. Ships are sailing already. If we must have this conversation, let us have it two years from now. Absolutely not. Delara Orange was a 40-year-old bichrome with great sagging breasts and the red and orange in her eyes pushing to the very edge of her irises. She was an Atashian. Atash got the governorship right after Perea. Perea took the very first rotation, when there were actually a few treasures left in the city and you looted it all. We also had to repair a city that had been burned to the ground and care for its injured and ill. We took only what was an appropriate recompense. Stop. You're having the wrong fight. This isn't about who has the governorship, in what order or for how long. It's been 16 years since we crushed Tyria. They still don't have a representative in this room. There are fewer Tyrians in the Cromeria every year. Why is that? Have they suddenly stopped bearing drafters there? Or is it because we have demanded a tribute from them so ruinous they can't support their drafters, which in turn impoverishes their land further? Then we hold Garriston, their main port and their largest city, and your governors tax every orange and pomegranate and melon. I've been to Garriston, and it's a shadow of its former greatness. The great irrigation canals are full of sand. The fields are worked by women and children, or no one, and there's not a drafter to be found. You pity them. When my brothers rise from the dead and the castle of Rue is rebuilt, I'll feel pity for Garriston. They joined Dazen. It was their war that killed tens of thousands. I saw them cast Satrapa Nahid's two-year-old son down the great steps. I saw them cut open her pregnant belly, take her babe, and make bets on how far down the steps one of their men could throw the screaming child. They cut off the Satrapa's nose and ears and breasts and arms and legs and threw her down after, while we watched The babe made it all the way to the last step, in case you're curious. I got some of its brain on my dress. I wanted to try and catch it, but I didn't move. No one did. Those are the people you wish us to have mercy on. Or maybe it's the people who sank the entire refugee flotilla, which had not a single drafter or armed man on board. That was Gavin's fault, as Dazen... He'd sent a young new general, Gad Delmarta, who had always been efficient and direct. Gavin had told Gad to secure Rue. General Delmarta had taken that to mean to secure it so that there could never be any resistance ever again. He'd exterminated the royal family, all 56 members of it, and scores of their male retainers, publicly, one at a time, in the order of their succession, and burned down their great castle, the pride of Atash. When the people had fled, General Delmarta had sent fire drafters after the flotilla. Gavin had only found out about it afterward, and then what could he do? It was war, and his general had followed his orders. And when General Delmarta marched on the great city of Edos next, it had surrendered without a fight because of their fear of the man, because of his cruelty. 
Maybe we could count how many children died when you burned Garriston in retaliation and barred the gates so no one could escape. I seem to recall that all the Tyrian drafters and all but 200 of the Tyrian soldiers were a hundred leagues away at the time. How long did it take for the river to clear of bodies? So many little corpses bobbing in the water. Even with all those hundreds of sharks turning the bay to bloody foam with their thrashing, it was weeks, wasn't it? Gavin had never learned whose idea it was, but when Garriston had been burned, someone had stationed red drafters all around the walls. Soldiers shielded the drafters while they hurled Red Luxon back and forth throughout the city. Red Luxon was used as fuel for lamps. Spread throughout a city, it had made a hell for the residents of Garriston. Tens of thousands had jumped into the river, and thousands more had jumped in on top of them. Their bodies themselves had almost been enough to dam the river in places. And then some of his older brother's cleverer drafters had floated Red Luxon down the river in little boats of green or blue Luxon, or mixed red and orange Luxon to make a concoction so flammable it would burn even underwater, or mixed it with superviolet to make it float, burning on the very water itself. Between the fire, the smoke, the water, the press of the crowds, the crushing deaths as whole buildings fell into the packed river, and the fire floating down the river itself, there had been death on a scale no one had ever imagined before. Before the war, Garriston had been home to more than 100,000 people. His own conscriptions had thinned that to perhaps 80,000. After the fires, only 10,000 remained. And after the first winter, only 5,000. Enough! Carver Black was no drafter, and so in some respects he was the weakest member of the spectrum. As the Black, he was responsible for most of the mundane aspects of ruling Little Jasper. Importing food, managing trade, awarding contracts, recruiting and paying soldiers, maintenance for buildings and the docks, building ships, and everything else that the White ceded to his control so she could focus on managing the Chromeria itself. But he was a formidable man, and Gavin respected him. We can list horrors all day, Lord Prism. What's the point? The point is, out of my five great purposes left, the only purely altruistic one is to free Garriston. Those people are suffering because of me, and you bastards have stopped every attempt I've made to help them. The point is that the Tyrians have as much reason to hate us as we have to hate them. We've been punishing them for the war for 16 years. Most of the people paying the price now were children when the war started. They see no reason they should continue paying for what their dead fathers did or didn't do. They hate us. And the fact is, none of us, none of the seven satrapies want to go back there with an army. What are you saying? Do you have specific intelligence of a threat? I'm saying if we don't pull out of Garriston and end the tribute on our terms, King Haradul is going to take Garriston by force and end it on his. That's what King Haradul had meant when he told Gavin, We're going to take back what you stole from us. But Gavin couldn't tell them about that without revealing more secrets and they wouldn't believe it anyway. I'm failing to see the humor here. Kleidos Blue was a coward in a dozen ways, but Ruthgar wasn't going to give up Garriston easily, Gavin knew. We've got a thousand soldiers and fifty drafters there. The drafters alone could hold off whatever army this King Haradul could raise. Knuckling under to a rebel, a man who declares himself king, it's unthinkable. He deserves death. First, us leaving is the right thing to do. We're punishing people who have suffered too much already, and they hate us for it. 
We've been planting the seeds of another war for the last 16 years. They started the war, yes. General Delmarta was born in Garriston, yes. But that doesn't excuse us from what we've done, which is not just wrong, but also stupid. Excuse me? Delara Orange's predecessor to the Orange, her mother, had been the architect of the rotating occupation scheme. You heard me. We get almost no Tyrian drafters. You think that's because none are born there anymore? Ha! What if, instead of training here, where they are poor and reviled and suspected as traitors, what if someone decided to train them closer to home? A new school, a Cromeria dedicated to vengeance, started because of our pettiness and stupidity. Nonsense. We would have heard of such a thing. But what if you hadn't? The quality of instruction might not be as good as ours. I hope it wouldn't be. But even with a few rudimentary fire spells, how long could your 50 drafters stationed in Garriston hold out against several hundred? How long could your soldiers hold out against thousands of rebels who could hide in plain sight among the locals? The fact is, King Haradul will take Garriston. He will demand it on terms that he knows are insufferable, and then he will seize it. The only question is... Will we lose, and lose face, and make King Haradul seem like a winner, and finally get drawn into a war your satrapies don't have the stomach for? Or will we forego a tribute which, after it's divided six ways, is insignificant, and give away that which we can't keep? If we give him an apology, we look moral. And if we do both before he asks, we deprive him of a victory and a cause. Do you have evidence of all this? Because it seems to me you would like us to give away an entire city for little reason otherwise. We don't know this new king, Haradul. He has only recently taken power. He hasn't sent us a single emissary, much less made demands. You're telling me none of you have spies at Haradul's side? A few sardonic smiles and silence. No one was going to admit that, of course. They didn't trust each other enough. There had been no wars in the last 16 years... But that didn't mean that everyone's interests were aligned. The Cromeria, at every capital, was as full of spies as it had ever been. If you don't, get some. Hylux, Lord, we take your advice to the satrapies very seriously, of course, but you... Listen, you morons! I don't know how you didn't see this coming! Or maybe some of you did. Your loyalty is noted. The fact remains, this is rebellion and it's heresy. King Haradul is talking about overthrowing the satrapies and the worship of Orholem himself. I would have thought Orholem would command better service from his colors. Enough! Enough, Lord Prism! The White looked at Gavin like she couldn't believe what he'd said. Nothing like calling powerful men and women idiots, ingrates, disloyal, and impious all at once. Looking around the room... Gavin saw shock on some faces, and hatred on others. I believe that we should take the Lord Prism seriously. It's only prudent that we should serve the Satrapies and Orholm as zealously as he does every day. I move that we send a delegation to Garriston to assess the threat from the alleged rebel horror duel and report back to us directly. A delegation?! Are you blind or stupid or corrupt?! By the time they- Gavin! Enough! The White took the vote for a delegation to be sent and report back in two months' time. It passed, five to zero, with two abstentions. Gavin sat back in his chair, as if stunned, defeated. In the silence, before anyone stood to leave, he shook his head. 
I ceded power after the war, gave up the Promachia. I became an advisor when many wanted me to be an emperor in truth. And now you ignore me. Very well. But tell your satraps and satrapas this. Prepare for war. King Haradul won't stop at taking Garriston. I guarantee it. You see, Father, this is the one thing I can do that you never could. I can handle appearing to lose. Liv had barely seen her new apartments in the Yellow Tower before she'd gone out. Not to celebrate, not because she was impulsive, but because her courage had been fading with every passing second. She'd been to half the moneylenders on the islands before she found one willing to do business with her. Stepping inside her new room, she found that the tower slaves had brought all her meager belongings over from the closet she'd called home for the last three years. And there was a woman sitting on her bed. She had a horse face and a pretentious smile. Salve, Liv. Been out celebrating? What are you doing in my apartments? How'd you get in here? It's not good to forget your friends, Oliviana. Aglaia stood and came to stand a hand's breadth from Liv's face. What, you're here to threaten me? I'm shaking. Something ugly crossed Aglaia's face, but then was replaced by that smooth mask again. <laughs> Careful with that sharp tongue, girl. You may cut your own throat. I'm done. Gavin Guile has bought you to be his bed slave. I heard. Go to hell. You're the one who'll do that, seeing how you're throwing yourself at the man who murdered your mother and destroyed your country. The prism didn't have anything to do with that. And you know that because he said so. Your mother died in those fires. Your father led the fight against Gavin Guile. What do you care about Garriston? Rathgar fought on the prism side. Your father fought beside Gavin. And my brother is the governor of Garriston. So I'm in a position to know things. And maybe you are now, too. No. I'm finished with you. With Rathgar and with your lies. Welcome to your new life, Liv. You're important now. You are a player in the great game and your hand isn't all that bad. You see, Liv. You might be Tyrian, but no one's going to hold that against you anymore. It will only make you more remarkable for overcoming such a handicap. The good life can be yours. You can't buy me. Hmm. We already did. Things are different now. By the prism's own command. I've been working with you for what? Three years now? And I went back through my notes. I never thought you were a thief, Oliviana Donovis. But now you're abandoning your duty after three years of schooling. Three years we've supported your every need. Oh, so generously, too. If it had been more generous, your debt would be that much greater now. Here's my question, Liv. What kind of woman are you? It was the same question that had put a quill in Liv's hand to sign away a fortune. With her new friendship with Gavin, she could probably tell the Ruthgari to go bugger themselves. What could they say against the prism's decision? And though Liv had gone from a nothing, a monochrome talented in a minimally useful color, she still wasn't worth fighting over. Plenty of each nation's investments went bad. Drafters died or burned out or switched loyalty in the last year of their training. Every nation tried to steal drafters, and the Rathgari were more successful at it than anyone else, so surely they wouldn't fight too hard to keep Liv. But to be a Danavis was to act with honor. Always. What do you want? You've been an embarrassment to me, Liv. The hardly talented daughter of a rebel general. But now you're going to be a jewel in my crown. 
You will be my vengeance on those who thought to slight me. And for that, I need you to be a success. You'll already be collecting a generous allowance from the bursa out of the Cromaria's general fund. Keep that, and we'll pay you double as well. We'll forgive your debt and the years of service you already owe us. Hell, if you play your cards right, you can draw allowances from three or four nations before you leave the Jaspers. Indeed, you won't need to leave the Cromaria at all if you serve us well. Think about that. You can have a life here, at the center of the world where everything important happens. Bed who you want, marry who you want, give your children every advantage you were denied. Or you can go serve some lordlings somewhere, writing letters and examining this wife's bed to see if she's faithful to him, hoping he'll give you permission to marry someone you can tolerate. Out of all the nations, Rathgar is the best to serve, and the worst to offend. But why do you want me to spy on the prism? He's never done anything to offend Rathgar. We like to keep an eye on our friends. It helps us remain friends, and... And yet you were just telling me how I could do this to hurt the man who killed my mother... Which is it, Aglaia? Do you want me to betray him to hurt him, or it's not really a betrayal at all because you aren't going to hurt him? Well said. The point is, you may be able to damage the man personally who is responsible for so much havoc in your country, but your interference, your betrayal, perverse girl insisting on calling the service of your own country a betrayal, your betrayal won't result in war. These lands have seen enough of that. It took Liv a moment to digest. It did make sense, in a way. But this is impossible. I don't know the prism. He talked to me once, once. And he liked you. I don't know that I'd go that far. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get someone next to that man? We're going to give you all this just for trying. Besides, we know he has a weakness for Tyrians. Maybe you can use this son of his to get close to him. We don't care. It was bad enough to be asked to betray the prism, but to use Kip to get to him? No. Kip was a good boy. Liv wouldn't do it. There was only one way out of this, and she'd known it all along. Liv pulled out three coin sticks. This is how much the Rathgari government has spent on my upkeep for the last three years, with interest. Here, take it. I'm done with you. I'm free. I don't owe you anything. Aglaia Krasos didn't even look at the coins. She didn't ask how Liv had gotten so much money. In truth, it had taken signing over a writ to an Abornian moneylender that would allow him to receive her allowance directly, and a ruinous interest rate. Liv was a pauper once more. She'd have to sell some of the marvelous dresses they'd given her just to stay afloat. <laughs> Liv, Liv, Liv. I don't want to be your enemy. But now that you're finally worth something... I'd swive a horse before I'd let you go. You have a cousin who was here when you first arrived. Showed you how things work here, yes? Erethana. She's a green serving Count Narsos in Western Rathgar. She just petitioned to marry some blacksmith. The Count has put a hold on it, at my request. You lovely couple, apparently. So happy together. Tragic if the Count decided the land needed Arathana to marry another drafter to increase her odds of having gifted children. Go to hell! And your own studies can be opposed. And rumours can be started from dozens of corners about all sorts of despicable things you've done. We can poison any well when you finish your studies and are looking for work. You can't stay under the prism's patronage forever. The second his eyes turn elsewhere. I'm not worth that much to Rothgar. No, not to Rothgar. 
but to me you are. Your attitude has made you worth my full attention. And if you make me look bad, I will make you mourn the day you ever met me. I already do. Get out! Get out before I kill you with my bare hands! Aglaia grabbed the money sticks. I'll take these for my troubles. After you've reconsidered, you know where to find me. Get out! Aglaia walked out. Liv was left trembling. That was it. Liv was going to kill her. It wasn't Aglaia. A beautiful woman stood there. A blood forester with the oddly pale, freckled skin that still seemed strange to live even after years at the Chromaria, and red hair like a flame. The woman was dressed in a slave's dress, but it was tailored to her lean figure and a finer cotton than Liv had ever seen any slave wear. A nobleman's slave? The slave handed Liv a note. Mistress, from the High Lord Prism. Liv Danibus stared at the note, feeling stupid, off balance. Please come see me at your earliest convenience. Her heart leapt into her throat. A summons from the prism. So here it was, the beginning of her paying her debt to Gavin Guile. She didn't fool herself by hoping it would be the end of it, too. When you owed a Lux Lord, you owed them forever. She just hadn't thought he'd ask for her so soon. Oddly, the first thing she thought of was, what do you wear for an audience with the prism? Liv didn't usually pay much attention to her choice of clothing. Maybe that was because when you only have a few changes of clothes, you wear what's clean and despair of ever wearing what's fashionable. That, of course, had changed instantly. Gavin had ordered that she be kept in an equivalent fashion to a Rothgari bichrome, and that meant lots of clothes, a few jewels, and this huge apartment, literally five times larger than the one she'd lived in for the last three years. And though she might not have any money, now she had makeup. Now she had options, and she wasn't sure she liked it. The idea of turning into a prissy girl like Anna made Liv's stomach turn. The slave was still standing at the door, waiting to be dismissed, with the pleasant, neutral expression of a woman ignoring the cluelessness of her superior. Pardon me, Kayleen, but would you help me? Liv always felt awkward when it came to dealing with slaves. No one in Recton had been rich enough to afford one, and the few slaves that came through working with the caravans were treated the same as other servants. Things were more formal at the Chromaria, and most of the other students had grown up having slaves or at least being around them, so Liv always felt like everyone else knew what to do, while she was all thumbs. She still felt weird calling a woman ten years her senior by the diminutive Colleen. Of course, now that Liv was a bichrome, she was going to have to get used to it fast, or she was going to look like an idiot even more often than usual. The slave cocked an eyebrow, like any 28-year-old would, at any 17-year-old being foolish. I, I don't know what to wear. I don't even know what at your earliest convenience means. Does that mean actually at my earliest convenience, or does it mean go right this moment, even if I were just wearing a towel? You can take a few minutes to dress appropriately. Liv stood paralyzed. Was what she was wearing now appropriate? Most women called to the prism's room wear something more... elegant. Maybe the fitted blue dress, then. Or that odd Elysian black silk sheath. But that was more of an evening dress, wasn't it? Or should she wear the shockingly small... Liv wrinkled her nose. There was something about the slave's statement that made her nervous. She could just imagine a procession of beautiful women queued up outside the prism's door. 
Liv had never heard any gossip about who the prism took to his bed, but she wasn't exactly in the middle of the juicy gossip circles, and she could certainly imagine more than a few girls willing to dress or undress any way the prism wanted. In addition to being basically the center of the universe, he was gorgeous, commanding, witty, smart, young, rich, and unmarried. Whoever had packed her drawers with cosmetics had bought mostly skin lighteners or darkeners. But with Liv's copiant cream-colored skin, she didn't have a hope of looking as light as a West Atashian. Her eyes were too dark anyway, and with wavy hair, even with a darkener on her skin, she wasn't going to look Perean. There was no hiding that she was Tyrian. All those other girls and women would look fantastic in their fancy dresses and perfect makeup. They'd feel comfortable, beautiful. Liv would feel like a fool and look like a tramp. How many of the women called to the prison's room had gone with ulterior motives? How many had been acting for one country or another? How many of the ones who hadn't been co-opted had gone with their own agenda anyway? All of them? She wasn't going upstairs to seduce Gabengile, to hell with Aglaia and her ilk. So why should she make herself look like she was? To hell with it. It's convenient for me to go right now. The slave looked like she wanted to speak, but she stopped herself. This way, ma'am. After they headed up the Luxlord's lift, the slave led Liv to the blackguard stationed there. The woman of the pair searched Liv for weapons. Thoroughly. Liv couldn't help but feel a little violated. Ooh, they take their job seriously, don't they? Do you have any idea what it would mean for the world if the prison died? He's not always an easy man, but he's a much better man than prisons usually are. And there are many of us who would do anything for him. Anything. Remember that. Ma'am. Liv stepped into the prism's room and found him sitting behind a desk, staring at her. His eyes were entrancing. Right now they looked like diamonds, scattering light everywhere. He gestured to the chair across from him, and Liv sat. Thank you, Marissa. You may go. Then he turned his diamond eyes on Liv. It's time for that favor. Scout! She's seen us! Bloody hell! After Recton, Corbin and Karis had decided to travel together. Both wanted to go after King Haradol's army, and for different reasons, Karis to join it somehow, and Corbin to see if he could find some way to exact vengeance. As they stood at the edge of a wood, half a league behind the rear guard, the scout was sprinting to the east, down a slight hill, rather than going straight for the rear guard. She'll have a horse down in the gully there. You might be able to cut her off. Corvin was unslinging his great U-bow. Uh, shot's too far, but I might get lucky. Karis was already running. The scout was a good 200 paces in front of Karis. Judging from the slight slope of the hill and making a guess, Karis angled off to the right. Probably the scout would make it to her horse, but if Karis were within 100 paces when the scout mounted, she wouldn't be mounted for long. Something dove out of the sky and pierced the ground, not five paces behind the fleeing scout. She didn't even notice. Damn. Corvin had nearly hit a sprinting target at 250 paces. That close, and he couldn't have gotten just a little closer? The woman turned and angled more to the right. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw Corvin's next arrow streak into view. The shot was more than 300 paces now, albeit with no wind so Corbin was having to shoot halfway between the horizon and the vertical simply for the arrows to make the distance. But this shot looked perfect. It dove, and the scout crashed into the ground full speed. 
Karis couldn't believe her eyes. An impossible shot. 300 paces at a running target? She cut left, heading straight for the woman. Almost as soon as Karis turned, she saw Corbin's arrow sticking out of the ground, back where the scout had fallen. It hadn't impaled her, it had tripped her. Even as Karis saw it, she saw the woman standing, her head swiveling toward Karis. She looked shaken, her palms bloody, a cut down the side of her face, but the woman started running regardless. Karis had easily covered a hundred of the two hundred paces between them, and as the scout had to go from a dead stop to sprinting, Karis made up more than half of that. She wasn't even thirty paces back. No more arrows fell. They were out almost four hundred paces now. Even with a Yu longbow, this was an extreme distance. There was no way Corvin would risk an errant shot, with Karis so close to their quarry. Karis fumbled with her necklace, trying to grab her eye caps. Even breaking stride that much gave the scout an edge, and she pulled away. Cursor! The woman ran like an antelope. But with the patience born of experience, Karis let her take the extra distance. Once she got the green and red eye caps on, the fight was over. She cracked apart the appropriate length of her necklace, watching the ground in front of her, ripped the Luxon off, and slowed for a few steps to get the cap stuck perfectly around each eye socket. The scout cut hard left as the hill descended rapidly. Karis came after her, filling her right arm with red Luxon and her left with green as she ran. She's coming! She's coming! Who's she shouting to? In an instant, Karis was over the hill and barreling down the steep path straight into a camp. There were a dozen men waiting for her, at least two with nets, two with catch poles, cudgels, staves, swords sheathed, not wanting to kill, but capture. A trap. Karis felt sick horror, the shot like a fist in her gut. Like she was 16 again, her father dragging her to a boat, sailing away from Big Jasper. Her father's boat had sailed past the family mansion, where she'd secretly, she thought, agreed to meet Dazen. Her brothers were there, lying in wait. They'd said they were going to teach Dazen a lesson for trying to destroy their family. But she'd seen murder in their eyes. She had been standing on the deck when an explosion had blown out all the windows of her room on the second floor of the mansion. She saw figures limbed in fire, fighting. Something ripped off half the roof. Bodies were hurled a hundred paces out into the water. Standing next to her on deck, her father paled. You said he was coming alone, you stupid slut! Look what you've done! He must have brought an army! Her father didn't strike her, just grabbed her head and made her watch, what she couldn't have torn her eyes away from if she tried. In minutes, the only home she'd ever known was engulfed in flames. She'd been a child then. She'd been unable to think, unable to act. She wasn't a child any longer. Karis used the height disparity of coming down the steep trail to leap at the first of the two horsemen who were side by side. He was holding a catch pole in both hands, and he brought it up sideways, trying to block. He caught her extended foot, but she just let her kick collapse and slammed into him with both knees. She rolled as she hit the ground, but had to catch herself with her right hand, which was holding her narrow attigan, so she drafted a thin blade of green Luxon from her left hand as she passed under the second horse. The blade passed through its belly easily. Karis was on her feet in an instant. She let the green Luxon disintegrate as she charged one of the netmen, switching her sword to her left hand. He was too stunned. He didn't move, not even as she lunged full length, stabbing at his face. Ah! 
Her right hand flung a weak arc of fire behind her for distraction. Kara saw a weighted net spinning toward her just as the arc of fire faded from the air. Perfect throw. But she waited, waited, switching sword hands again until the net was between her and a man swinging a staff overheaded her. Kara shot out two horseshoes of green Luxon. One whistled harmlessly through the twisting, expanding net. But though it missed the net, the horseshoe did catch the staff swinger in the cheek. The second horseshoe snagged the net as it passed through and whipped it back into several men, its leaden weight suddenly becoming a flail. Men were falling away from her on every side. Karis flung little balls of fire at the tents nearest her, blocking her view, curse being short. The tents went up in flames, but it didn't seem to phase anyone but Karis. Everyone was fleeing. She was just beginning to get a sense of how many men were in this camp. There were dozens of tents, Maybe a hundred men? She had to get out. Damn! Karis looked up and saw a wide half-circle of musketeers, at least 40 of them. Half were reloading in smooth, practiced motions, unhurried, well-trained. The other half had their muskets still loaded, trained on Karis. The next volley takes your life, Karis White Oak! The man was lean, mounted, wearing rich garments that announced he was King Raskaradol, if the smug expression on his face hadn't. The sword and the Luxon, now! Karis looked at the semicircle of blasted dirt in front of her, trying to gauge the accuracy of the King's Musketeers. Pretty damn good. They were only 20 paces away. It would take a miracle. King Haradol's armor was, of course, mirrored, and he had mirror men and drafters to his left and right. What about Corvin? If Corvin ran as fast as she had, he might get here at any time. Karis always lost track of time once fighting started. Maybe he'd already seen what she had gotten into. Either way, not even he could do anything against these odds. He certainly couldn't save Karis from 20 musketeers with an easy shot at her. Karis pulled off her eye caps and dropped them and threw her sword away let the green and red dribble from her fingertips. Usually, when she let the Luxon go, she felt less wild, less angry. Not this time. <coughs> Galan! King Haradol gestured to someone behind her. Karas was starting to turn when something heavy cracked her over the head. Kip followed Commander Ironfist up another flight of steps, which disgorged them in front of the biggest double doors Kip had ever seen. The doors were a slightly smoky glass, filled with slow waves of every hue, a great lake of color. Commander Ironfist lifted one great silver knocker. Though the door itself didn't move, the light within it cratered and threw ripples out in every direction. It took Kip's breath away. He put a hand on the door, and where his fingers touched, tiny ripples formed. Don't touch. <gasps> Kip pulled back his hand, as if burned. There are a few things you need to know before you go in, Kip. First, it's all real. We lose one out of every ten supplicants. Uh, lose as in... They die. Second, you can make it stop whatever you want. There will be a rope put in your hand. Pull the rope and it will ring a bell. They'll stop immediately. Third, if you quit, you're finished. You can't stay. 
It costs a lot of money for a satrap to maintain a drafter, and not one of them will waste money on a coward. Gavin has instructed me that should you fail, I'm to give you enough silver to buy a small farm and put you on a ship to the destination of your choice. It's better than most failures get, but you'll not be allowed to return here ever again. You're shame enough as it is. I'm shameful? The life of a drafter is hard and short. I don't have time for lies, no matter how comforting. You're a bastard. That's a common enough shame for a great man, but it's a shame nonetheless. Anyone who can do simple arithmetic will know that you were sired while the prism was betrothed to Karis White Oak, a woman most of us hold in high regard. Prisms are held to a higher standard, so you're a greater shame than usual. Even if you're excellent in every regard, you'll still be a shame. If you're a failure, it's worse. That's the truth. Dressing it up in silk and lace isn't going to change it. Now, fourth, they say Orholum himself watches every initiation. Failing means failing him, farm boy. Ready? If Kip failed, he'd be put off the island. Not only would he shame the man who'd saved his life, but he would lose his only chance for retribution on the man who'd taken his mother's. Kip wasn't going to fail. He'd die first. Iron Fist saw the look on his face. Good. The great doors in front of Kip rippled once more, the molten iridescent hues undulating gently, and then seeming to spill left and right. It was as if something huge were surfacing from unimaginable depths. <gasps> Kip's heart seized as a great face appeared. So fast he couldn't even comprehend all the details. Just white hair, eyes like stars, and water of every shade bursting away from his features as he burst free and opened his mouth. A yawning cavern of blackness that overwhelmed the doors. It seemed the mouth would swallow Kip. The doors burst open from within, as if a giant had smashed them. Enter. Kip walked in alone to a round chamber. The walls and floor were the same smoky clear crystal as the door. Seven figures stood in a crescent around a black disc inlaid in the floor. Kip hesitated, and none of them moved. No one told him where to go. The figures were robed, one for each color. The super-violet wore violet robes, and sub-red wore deep red robes, for the benefit of those who couldn't see into their spectra. But as Kip widened and then tightened his eyes, he saw that the sub-red was indeed radiating heat, and the super-violet was clad in his color, hard pieces of super-violet luxon hooked together, like rings of mail. Still uncertain, Kip walked toward them. As he got closer, he could see beneath their hoods. His fists balled. The sub-red had blackened skin. No eyebrows, no hair. Little flame wisps escaped from its head. The green's face was gnarled as an old oak, its eyebrows like moss, hair strung with lichen. The blue looked like cut glass. Features either smoothed out to planes or sharpened to jewel-like points. Dear old Holland, were these all color whites? Then, from within his sleek goo, the orange blinked. Kip noticed the eyes, all of their eyes. These were drafters in masks and makeup. They represented the whites of each color, seven different varieties of death and dishonor. Kip started breathing again, though he couldn't control a little tremble. He stepped onto the black disc, facing them. I am a knot, subred. I am wrath. I am consumed with rage. 
I am Dagnu, red. I am gluttony. I can never be filled. I am Moloch, orange. I am greed. I can never be satisfied. I am Belfagor, yellow. I am sloth. I withhold my talents. I am Ataroth, green. I am lust. I desire evermore. I am mocked, blue. I am envy. I cannot bear others' good fortune. I am Verilux, violet. I am pride. I would usurp Orhalom's own throne. They were the names of the old gods. Kip had barely even heard of them. These are the distortions of our nature. The temptations of power. For without mastery of ourselves, we become monsters. Shameful and ashamed, hiding in the darkness. But we are the sons and daughters of Orholam. We are Orholam's gift, expressions of his love. His law. His mercy. His truth. Thus we stand unashamed, clothed in his righteousness. The sub-red stepped forward, pulled off his mask, and stepped out of his robe. He was a young man, muscular, handsome, and naked. Casting off wrath, I am patience. He lifted his hands, and even without looking into the sub-red, it was clear that he was drafting. The air shimmered with heat around his whole body. Or Holum's will be done. The Red stepped forward, pulled off her mask, and stepped out of her robe. She was young, athletic, beautiful, and also naked. Kip's eyes widened. He tried to hold them to her face. Casting off gluttony, I am temperance. She lifted her hands, and Red Luxon blossomed through her entire body. Eyes, face, down her neck to her breasts. Nipples, firm, tight stomach. Breasts, nipples. In an instant, she was like a statue. Every bit of her skin dyed a perfect red. Or Hollum's will be done. The orange stepped forward. Casting off greed, I am charity. He lifted his hands and turned a gleaming orange. Or Hollum's will be done. Casting off sloth, I am diligence. Or Hollum's will be done. Yellow's body filled with sparkling yellow light. The green was a disconcertingly, if appropriately curvaceous woman who looked Kip hard in the eye. That helped as she disrobed. He thought she might slap his head off if he looked at her generous... Casting off lust, I am self-control, or Holum's will be done. The blue disrobed. Casting off envy, I am kindness, or Holum's will be done. The super-violet was the last man and he was enormously muscular. Casting off pride, I am humility, or Holum's will be done. As one, they brought their hands down and pointed them at Kip's feet. Sprays of pure color blasted the black circle he stood on. Then, abruptly, the disc of rock began sinking into the floor, and Kip with it. In moments, Kip was down to his butt, 
but the hole was too narrow. His vet caught on the sharp sides of the floor. He had to shimmy just to fit, and as the hole deepened, either his stomach or his butt was pressing against a wall. Raise your right hand. As Kip did, swallowing convulsively, he saw a rope dropping all the way from a ceiling so high above that he couldn't see past the glare of its brightness. The superviolet caught the rope and put the knotted end in Kip's upraised hand. Pull the rope, and it ends. Then Kip was fully in the hole and still going down. He stopped below the floor. The light high above in the testing chamber went out. Kip could see nothing. He tried to take a deep breath, but the chamber was so tight he couldn't even draw a full breath. Dees, will you run this test for me? I've never run one before, my lord. You know, I think we set the tube too narrow. He's fat. He could suffocate. He's the prisms, bastard. So? He's not here. So accidents happen. But I can't be here when they do. The prism knows I hate him. He doesn't know you. So if an accident happens on your watch, I can get away with it. Kip couldn't hear the rest because water started pouring over his head. It ran down the back of his neck to where his back was pressed tight against the walls. The walls around him pulsed an intense blue. Dear or Holm, they were going to kill him to get back at his father. Just like Gavin had warned him. The water pooled around his middle. He was too fat for it to drain down to his feet. He sealed the whole tube. Kip's heart was pounding. The intense light emanating through the walls burned from blue down into green through the whole spectrum in order, even through heat, and then faded into nothing again as the water reached Kip's neck up to his ear. He pushed his body hard against the side of the chamber, and a gap opened between his hip and the wall. The pooled water poured down to his feet, but it kept coming from above. For a few moments, he was able to intermittently push against the wall and make it drain once more, but soon he was awash, nearly floating. He pushed against the wall again, and the water didn't drain at all. There was nowhere for it to go. The water rose once more to his left shoulder, which was trapped down, even as his right was trapped up. Then, up to his neck, his left ear. He didn't notice when the walls pulsed superviolet, but then they passed through blue to green as the water rose to his chin, to yellow as it touched his lips, orange as it covered his lips. Was the water falling more slowly on his head now? He wriggled to try to use his body's wedged-in position to climb higher in the tube and found that there were straps above his shoulders, keeping him down. This was insanity. Someone was trying to kill him. Kip had to ring the bell. His fingers were claws around the rope. He could try again when there wasn't a murderer around. No, quitting meant being put out. It meant failing. There was barely time to take one last deep breath before the water covered Kip's nose. The falling water pelting his head abruptly ceased. Kip could imagine it now. He was so fat, he trapped the water. It wasn't supposed to be that high. We didn't put too much water in. He just panicked. You know, a child trapped in the fray. He must not even have thought to pull the rope. So that was it. He either quit and shamed his father more than his very existence already did, or his father's enemies did their best to kill him. His lungs were just beginning to burn, and there was a sudden, stark clarity to the world. Pull the rope, go home! But there was no home. So, pull the rope and go farm somewhere, or stay and maybe die. 
Fail here, and he failed his father and his mother. Fail here, and he was a failure forever. I'm not pulling the rope! The chamber went black. The water got hot from the sub-red light, but then even that faded. I don't like farming! He couldn't make his heart slow. He couldn't stop his throat from swallowing convulsively, his chest from pumping on nothing. I'm not pulling the rope, damn you! I'm not pulling the rope! Something shifted. At first, Kip thought it was the water pouring out, but it wasn't. The ground below him was rising. The stops above his shoulders stayed in place, crushing him in place. The water, far from draining, simply rose up his raised arm. In moments, he squatted down, pushed against his own knees. It squeezed him, and the last of his breath bubbled out. He was trying to hold on to nothing. Breathing the water in would be worse than breathing nothing at all. He knew it, and yet his body overwhelmed him. He sucked a breath in. The water was hot, sharp, acrid in his lungs. He hunched even tighter against his own knees, his body ripping itself apart. He coughed, and miraculously, water shot out of his mouth into air. He could breathe, mostly. His knees hurt from being squashed tighter than his not-so-flexible joints would allow. His back hurt, his ribs hurt. But or holum, the air was good. If only he could get a full breath. Nothing happened. It was still utterly black. Kip was sweating now. He was packed in here. It was getting hotter by the second, and he was still dripping wet. The colors flashed past him, through the whole spectrum again. So that's how it was. They saw that he wasn't going to quit, so they weren't going to give him another chance with the colors. It didn't matter. I'm not pulling the rope. I'm not pulling the rope! In response, the floor rose even more, crushing him harder against the stays on his shoulders. He couldn't even push back against the stays. His knees were bent too far to get him any leverage. If he just pulled on the rope a little, he could get a breath, and then he could go on fighting. No! Kip deliberately relaxed his fingers, his arm. He concentrated on breathing. It was enough. It would be enough. He was making it enough. A succession of colors blurred past him. Kip didn't care. Was he supposed to do something? What? Draft? Right. Go bugger yourselves! The pressure eased suddenly, and the floor dropped. <gasps> then the walls eased wider. Kip almost fell, but after a moment, his rubbery legs were able to take his weight. The walls pulled back farther, farther. He tried to take a wider stance, but there was nothing beyond his little disc, except air. Reaching one hand out, Kip couldn't feel the walls at all. A breeze blew across his skin, giving him the sensation that he was standing on some high place. It had to be an illusion, though. He was in the middle of the school. No way was there a big hole here. Colors flashed through distant walls, illuminating the chamber for a brief, terrifying moment. Kip stood over an abyss. His disc was the tiny round top of a pillar, a pillar standing alone in the middle of nothingness. The walls were 30 paces away. The ceiling over his head had a single hole, 
through which only his hand was poking. Wind buffeted him, and Kip felt his grip go white-knuckled on the rope. He clamped his eyes shut, but then he couldn't tell if he was swaying with the wind, or against it, or staying still. His heart was beating so hard he could hear his own pulse in his ears. After an eternity, the walls came back. They closed firmly around him, but comfortably now, and he felt a surge of relief. He'd made it. He'd passed. He hadn't given up. He hadn't pulled the... Something touched his leg. What was that? It curled around his ankle, twisted around his calf. A snake. Kip looked up, and some many-legged thing dropped on his face. He reached a spastic hand up to sweep a spider away, but felt a manacle snap over his wrist and pull his left arm away. He tried to kick the snake away from his feet. Shackles closed around his feet and yanked them wide apart. The spider fell into his mouth. Before he even knew what he was doing, Kip bit down fiercely on it, crushing it in his teeth, sour goo squirting into his mouth. Something landed in his hair. Dozens of slithering things roped around his feet, climbed his legs. He was going crazy. I'm not pulling the rope! You bastards! I'm not pulling the rope! His whole body was covered with loathsome things. Salvation lay in his hand. There was nothing wrong with farming. No one would hold failure against him. He didn't need to see these people ever again. And what did he care what they thought of him anyway? The whole game was stacked against him. He was finished. It was over. Ah! Kip took the rope. With all his loathing and fury and despair rising in him, totally overwhelming him, failure calling his name, and threw it out of the hole. He sank against the wall, burying his face in the rock. Colors flashed past once more. But the snakes and spiders didn't go. They covered his body. Still, the oppressive darkness continued. Something heavy and hairy landed on his back. Little claws stabbed him through his shirt. A rat. Then one on his thigh. Another landed on his head, scratching him as it slid off his wet hair. Kip froze. Fear like lightning flashed through his entire body. He was in a cupboard, helpless, starving. Parched. His motion disrupted the nasties, and something bit him. More prickly bites, stinging bites, savage bites covered his arm, his legs, his groin, his back. Kip threw himself against one wall and then the other, trying to crush the beasts. Rats were climbing up his body on every side, and they refused to let go. He was so ashamed. He couldn't take it anymore. He was finished. Kip couldn't stop himself. He reached for the rope. He was a failure, a shame, a fat, blubbering coward, a nothing. He felt the rope pressed back into his hand. Kip pulled the rope, failure. At once, the stinging ceased. Every slithering, crawling, clinging, stinging thing evaporated, disappeared. They weren't real. They hadn't been real rats, 
Kip should have known from the spider he'd bitten. Would have known, if he hadn't been such a coward. That goo inside hadn't been guts, it had been Luxon. It was all illusions, fake fears. He'd been tricked. He'd failed. Congratulations, supplicant! Mistress Verados came to join the circle. Kip stared at her, dumbfounded. Four minutes and twelve seconds. You should be very proud. I'm sure your father will be. She was speaking some language Kip didn't understand. Proud? He'd failed. He'd shamed himself, shamed his father. He'd given up. The rage and frustration that had been building up suddenly had nowhere to go, leaving him feeling stupid. I failed. Everybody fails. You did great. Four minutes twelve. I only lasted a minute six. I don't understand. <laughs> that is how the test is designed. We all failed. They surrounded him. Men pounding him on the back. Women touching his arms or shoulder. All congratulating him. But is it true? Mistress Verido stood back some, lest the jostling crowd knock her over. Everyone fails? Almost everyone. It's not to see if you can make it through the test. It's to see what kind of a person you are. And fear widens your eyes. Those colors you saw flashing past were the real test. Those will tell us what you can draft. Are you ready to see your results? Wait. Almost everyone? Who doesn't fail? The only person in my lifetime who didn't take the rope was... Gavin. Kip knew it. Of course. His father had been the one man who did what no one else could do. What no one else had ever done. Kip had failed him. Your uncle. My uncle, Gavin. Or my uncle, Dazen. Your uncle, Dazen, Guile. Who nearly destroyed our world. Good footsteps not to follow, hmm? She was speaking that other language again. After all Kip had seen Gavin do, it was Gavin's brother who'd passed? Four minutes is wonderful, Kip, but that's just bragging rights. Are you ready to see your colors? 